The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. We're in. We're in. Welcome to Mastery Tom Ong. Oh, yep. The podcast. <laughs> I'm not even gonna fight this. Where all the vowels are wrong. Well, why didn't you make the vowels wrong in the part where you said all the vowels are wrong? I don't know. I panicked. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't plan the bit. I just was improving. I love when it's organic. Where all the because it's hard to say vowels with any Where of the wrong all vowels. The vowels are ring. <laughs> See teamwork. I'm so excited. Yay! <laughs> Happy 45. Wham, 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 wham. Yay! 45 episodes today. <laughs> How did we do it? Um, I don't know, but we're coming up on 50 quick, and I'm really excited because we have something very special planned for our 50th episode. This is how we're going to be when we're in our 40s, too. We're going to be like, we're coming up on 50 real quick, and we're, we're gonna very be like, excited. 45. How did we get here? <laughs> I didn't think I was going to make it to 20, so. <laughs> um, listener discretion is advised. I don't have a beer to crack because I prepared a special mango cart with a tahine rim for myself today oh look at you if you like mango cart which i do uh it's best served with a tahine rim so if you haven't tried it try it i'm gonna politely disagree based on the fact that i hate tahine (laughs) okay if you like mango cart and tahine you you should try it with a tahine rim okay i'm gonna clack my clack my craw Crack the claw. Crack the claw. Um, I have an update for you. I'm so excited. So remember I told that story about how my neighbors tried to get in the elevator with me? And yes. They weren't wearing Did that masks. story make it to air? I don't remember. I don't remember when it happened. Okay. Either way, I'll tell I you. Mean, it doesn't I'll matter. tell you now and we can just cut it out. But so um, Diane and George, my crazy, lovely old neighbors, who you've met, Maggie. Of course. Um, can't... I ordered some cat food online, and they carried it all the way upstairs for me because they left it down in the lobby, and then they knocked on my door, and, like, we had a little chat, and I was like, I'm so sorry I'm not wearing a mask. I thought you were Amazon, and you were just going to, like, walk away, and they were like, that's okay. We'll stay away from you. How are you doing? We wanted to check in, and I was like, that's so sweet, and they were like, we're really glad that you're, like, like, apologizing for not wearing a mask because there's this couple in the building who won't wear a mask and I was like blonde girl Ah! tall guy 
And yeah. they were like, yeah. And apparently they ran into them in the, in the lobby and they like <laughs> were standing really close to them. And Diane and George were like, can you like move away from us? And they were Diane like, Diane and George are also like, to my recollection, they're like 80. They're old. Aren't they yeah. like in their 70s? They're late or, 70s. Yeah, okay. And so they were like, mm-hmm. can you not stand that close to us? And they were like, no. And they were like, why aren't you wearing masks? And they were like, we don't wear masks. <laughs> Honestly, bless them for asking. I know. I love them. And then she came and talked shit about it to me, which I loved. <laughs> Normally, I wouldn't ever encourage anyone to like shame another person. But it, when you're when someone is like endangering people around them, I feel like maybe you can shame them about not wearing Absolutely. a mask These when you're standing should next be to Absolutely. A, an elderly person in their own building ridiculous and I was like that's so funny because they tried to get in the elevator with me with no masks on and she was like that sounds like something they would do fuck them and I was like yes Diane <laughs> I'm so glad that you this that this story had a happy ending because you had a camaraderie with George and Diane yeah. that, is that their names? and they didn't yeah. um welcome me to La La Land oh they remember they remember you. now that I've lived here for over two years <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm from here that's good right I love them. That's good. Oh, I love that. Um, it seems like it's much more interest or much more like possible to have interesting stories about your life when you interact with other people. Yeah. And I have not interacted with another person, <laughs> excluding our uh, social distance film shoot. So I have nothing interesting to tell you. Someone recently asked me what my building was like. And I was like, it's just like basically each floor is its own sitcom. (laughs) And they were like, oh, who's the Kramer? And I was like, honestly, I think every single one of us is the Kramer. (laughs) It's just a building full of Kramers. (laughs) Kramer Feld. That's all the business I have. I'm Maggie. And I'm being haunted by every person who lives in my building. (laughs) <laughs> just kidding i'm kayla <laughs> <laughs> well done thank you are you ready for a mastery i'm ready for a mystery oh i wasn't really prepared what about a mastery i don't have my mastery pants on <laughs> what pants do you have on i have my mystery pants on oh uh where'd you get those target how come i don't have any i don't know because you're a fucking loser. <laughs> just kidding. <gasps> you're not. I'm just wearing shorts. Mystery shorts? <laughs> Normal shorts. I, I want matching mystery pants. I know. We should get like social distancing matching jammies that we wear when we record just so that we know we're matching. I would love that. And yeah. I'm ready for a mystery. A mastery? No. What? <laughs> God, she's so specific about her vowels. God. uh, She's so specific about her vowels. Have you ever met Kayla? She's so specific about her vowels. (laughs) I really like her. It's just that she's like kind of anal about her vowels. I was going to say anal. (laughs) Uh, And her pants, apparently. Her pants. Okay. Her pints. Are you ready for this mystery? I've been ready. You're the one changing vowels around on you me. You are going to cry. I don't want to. Are you so excited? No. <laughs> okay, do you want me to not do it? No, I want you to do it. We can do something I else. Just don't... <laughs> Should we play MASH? Like, we're... 
<laughs> like it's a fire drill in third grade. Yeah, I'm down. No, I'm ready. Or make like a cootie catcher. Oh my god. <gasps> I just had a business idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, I love business. Okay, reusable, <laughs> highly designed cootie catchers for older, for like grown up millennials. Love it. Like, we'll just make them out of sturdy material and, like, make them really pretty. Love it. Ten bucks a piece. Correct. We can also do, like, a mash notepad. <gasps> this is genius. We, ha- Where you we can have just to tear them off. <laughs> yeah, we have to stop because <laughs> <laughs> this is a genius idea. No, we're, cre- we're already creating buzz about it. This is great. Copyright Mystery Tom off. No. <laughs> Mystery Tom off. <laughs> 2020. Uh, that's a great idea. Okay, but I am ready. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving Eve, November 24th, 1971. Portland International Airport. Do I not get to know what it is? A well-dressed man in a black raincoat. Stop. Loafers. Stop. A dark suit and yeah. a neatly pressed white collared shirt. A black clip-on tie and another <gasps> no! tie in approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient no, Airlines no. The and paid $20 cash for a one-way ticket to Seattle aboard Flight 305, a Boeing 727 <laughs> aircraft, under the name Dan Cooper. No! <laughs> but because of a news media miscommun- miscommunication, this man became known as D.B. Cooper. My- and what happened next would become the only unsolved case of air piracy in commercial aviation history, which it remains to this day. Or does it? I wish you could, like, feel how hard my fast... How fast... <laughs> now who's changing vowels? I didn't change words. <laughs> the words. I was so excited. The clip... When you said clip on tie, I almost blacked <laughs> out. <laughs> hurts <sighs> i'm so excited oh my god well <sighs> okay i'm confused about what you're doing though that that's what we're exploring today on db cooper 2 the suspects oh so on july 1st 2018 two daring amateur sleuths released an episode of mystery team inc called <laughs> episode five the murder of ken McElroy and db cooper a nice mob that's so weird that's on my birthday <laughs> um yeah that is your birthday yeah so it says a lot about what i was doing on my birthday <laughs> <laughs> that we like were editing a podcast <laughs> well we released it in the morning so it would have been like we edited it the day before, which means we probably recorded it like two weeks before that. <laughs> it was the early days. Back in the old days. So today we're covering two possible suspects. The most widely accepted suspect and a suspect who came to light in November of 2018. <gasps> Just months after the release of Mystery Team Inc. Episode 5. The murder of Ken McElroy and D.B. Cooper, a nice mob. Oh, my God. I know. So the reason that this happened is because I discovered this more recent suspect, and I was trying to figure out how I could tell this story, and it seemed appropriate to tell the story of, like, the most prolific suspect and this new suspect. Do you just sit around and Google D.B. Cooper? <laughs> no. Like, how did you come across a new suspect? 
Well, I was looking through a thread of mysteries that were solved by deathbed confessions. <gasps> and I was wanted to make like a special mini-sode about them and just read them to you. But I would one of, then. I know. One of the mister one of the like someone posted on the thread that a man named Dwayne Weber had deathbed confessed to being DB Cooper. But there's actually no evidence that like linked him to the crime and he was a con man his whole life and it just like doesn't really track. He didn't fit the description, he was like the wrong age, whatever. So <laughs> that's like a really bad way to go out as a con man. <laughs> I know. At least so, make your last con a good one. Well, it was interesting because he told his wife, he was like, I'm Dan Cooper. And she didn't even know what that meant because he didn't say DB, he said Dan. And uh, she like looked it up and was like, what the hell? And then she went to the library and she picked up a book about DB Cooper. And when she like rented the book from the li- what do you say? Check out the book. Yeah. She went and checked out the book from the library. <laughs> you don't rent it. It's not like Blockbuster. When she checked out the book from the library, it had her husband's handwriting in it. And he had written, like, corrections in the margins. And she was like, it must have been him. But it turns out there's no other, like, there's no corroborating evidence. And she's sure it was his handwriting? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like he was setting up the con. Yeah. Wow, that's... I think he did. Really good. That's a good setup. Here's the thing. (laughs) He actually did plant a bunch of really, like, great evidence. Like, he did like take her on a trip in that air in the area where the money had been buried and was like wait in the car and like he was like planting seeds for a long time so dramatic but there's no that it's all circumstantial there's no like actual evidence really um and then i came upon this like new story so before we get into the suspects i want to refresh us on the profile of db cooper and i also want to say that if you haven't listened to that episode if you don't remember it, you should go listen to it. It's episode number five. Um, for the uninitiated, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a ticket for a flight from Portland to Seattle in November of 1971. He got on the plane. He drank whiskey and smoked a bunch of cigarettes. He passed a note to the flight attendant. She ignored it because she thought he was hitting on her. And then he said, ma'am, you might want to read that note because I have a bomb. And then he showed her his briefcase. And in it, he had what looked like a bomb. It was, like, red cylinders with, like, wires. He politely demanded that the crew radio Seattle-Tacoma Airport and let them know that he wanted $20,000 in unmarked bills. And he also demanded that the crew land the plane at SeaTac and let the passengers off. He said he wanted meals for the flight crew, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. They landed the plane. They let everybody off except for the flight attendants, which I'll get into later. So one flight attendant stayed and the pilots. The FBI gave the airline $200,000 in unmarked bills, but they had actually made microfilm of every single one of them. So they were traceable, unbeknownst to Dan Cooper, D.B. Cooper. That's interesting. I don't think that's something that you... Is that something you said last when you first did the mystery? Yeah. That doesn't sound familiar. That's awesome. They're, they were like unmarked, but they were traceable. They made microfilm copies of all of them. Oh, I don't remember that part. Well, 
we knew that they definitely made them traceable because we know that none of the money ever went into circ- back into circulation. Right, 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 right. Okay. So that's why I'm ref- that's just why I'm refreshing because this is like oh, because of my terrible memory and that no, was it's two just years that, ago. <laughs> no, it's just that these are all little details that are going to come back later. So it's important that everyone, if you haven't heard the episode, I want you to at least like have an idea of what's going on. Um, but you really should just go listen to the episode. Um, then he demanded that. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. So then the FBI gave him the money. They refueled the plane. They gave him military parachutes, which he rejected, demand in favor of civilian parachutes from a local skydiving school. And then um, he demanded that the two pi- or the three pilots and the remaining crew member fly the plane to Mexico City, agreeing to a fuel stop in Reno, Nevada. Um, but he asked. He insisted that it be flown at like ten thousand feet at a, a certain speed. And they were basically like, no, when he was like, I don't really care what you think. It's what we're going to do. So that's what they did. Two minutes into the flight, D.B. Cooper asked the flight attendant, Tina Mucklow, to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit. Tina. Yeah, she's in this episode heavily. She features it heavily. At 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft air stair apparatus had been activated. And at 8.13, the tail section sustained a sudden upward movement. And when it landed in Reno, the aft stairs were still deployed and D.B. Cooper was gone. A wire to the media mistakenly referred to him as D.B. Cooper, but by the time that it was corrected to Dan Cooper, it was too late. So now I'm going to just refresh for Kayla, but also for any new listeners. I'm going to give you a quick bit of information about the profile, like the forensic profile of D.B. Cooper. This is what FBI profilers think about him based on statements that D.B. Cooper made to flight attendant Tina Mucklow, his actions during the hijacking, and witness accounts of, like, what he looked like. He was said to be middle-aged, believed to be in his 40s. He was familiar with the Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran. He correctly recognized Tacoma from the air and also correctly stated that the McCord Air Force Base was 20 minutes from Seattle-Tacoma Airport, which is not something that most civilians would know or make a comment about. I knew that, and I make a comment about that every time I fly to Seattle. (laughs) Every time we fly to Seattle, we should lean into the flight attendant and be like, McCord Air Force Base is down there. Like, oh, that's Tacoma. And just see if any of them know what we're we're doing. But we also have to wear clip-on ties. (laughs) And wrap idea. around sunglasses. Why haven't we done that? Wait, why haven't we been D.B. Cooper for Halloween or something? Because we're... You know what we should do? We should be the... No, Unabomber's too sensitive of a subject. No, let's be the two side-by-sides of D.B. Cooper so one of us can wear the sunglasses and one of us cannot. <laughs> the third God, thing that so the funny. forensic profilers say is that he either urgently needed the money or he may have been a thrill seeker who did it just to prove it could be done. I think it's that one because... Ooh, my crush is coming back. <laughs> he also had dark hair and dark eyes. Um, Tina Mucklow asked D.B. Cooper, and I don't know if we talked about this in the first episode. Tina Mucklow asked D.B. Cooper when she was sitting next to him, do you have a grudge against Northwest? And D.B. Cooper said, I don't have a grudge against your airlines, miss. I just have a grudge. Damn. Which I think is maybe new information for the podcast. Yeah, I didn't, I don't, well, I don't I don't remember anything, talking so. about that. Okay, great. You're the memory. I'm the not memory. <laughs> Evidence. You're the RAM. I'm the computer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why you always get so hot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, 
The sixth point of profiling is that evidence suggested that Cooper was knowledgeable about flying technique, aircraft, and the terrain. He demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he might compel one or more of the hostages to jump with him, ensuring that he would not be deliberately supplied with a sabotage equipment. Although we know that they accidentally did give him a dummy parachute. Which yeah, he, from the skydiving place. Yeah, be, which was an accident, did, which he took as his reserve parachute. Do we think that it was like <laughs> that like the FBI went in and picked out the parachutes? Or do we think the skydiving no. instructors picked them out? And I like, think it would literally. One of them was just high. Because this was a this was like a hang up in the refueling stop where he was like, I don't want these parachutes. And demanded civilian ones. And they had to go get them. I know. I'm just curious, like, who was in charge of, like, picking out the parachutes yeah, I don't know. I once couldn't tell they you. got to the skydiving Well, here's school. the thing. They say that the dummy parachute had clear markings that any experienced skydiver would have recognized, meaning that mm. it was not functional, which makes me think that it must have been the FBI. Yeah. <laughs> they must have sent, like, an FBI PA to go grab the parachutes oh. from the skydiving school. <laughs> We also know that he ripped up the functional reserve parachute and used it to tie the money to his body. And I'm going to reveal something interesting about that later that I didn't know as well. So he had, he jumped with a functional parachute, but his reserve was the dummy. The seventh point of profiling is that he chose the 727-100 aircraft because of the unique features it had that made it perfect for a bailout escape, such as the engine placement, which I guess is like very far forward. Um, its ability, which was unusual for a commercial air, commercial jet airliner, to remain in slow, low-altitude flight without stalling. And he knew that the aft air stair could be lowered during flight, which is a fact that was never disclosed to civilian flight crews, since there was no situation on a passenger flight that would make it necessary. And that its operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be overridden from the cockpit. Ooh. Some of this knowledge was virtually unique to CIA paramilitary units. So they wow. they assumed that he knew that. The, the, the thing is, he may not have known that. He may have gotten lucky. But they, the FBI, in their original profile, said that he must have had some idea. Um, and I don't talk about this much uh, in the episode. But there was... Now, I'm really wishing that I had written it down because it's super interesting. And I, like, didn't think that it was relevant. But... Um, there was like a secret military operation where they took Boeing 727s uh, in the late 60s and they used them as like a, under a fake cover of a humanitarian aid operation where they were um, using them to like drop supplies and like do par- like paramilitary jumps but they were it was under the guise of a humanitarian aid operation and so some people say that that could have been a way that someone may have come across the information about about the aft stairs and the jumping dynamics yeah, that makes sense sorry that was not very succinct because i did not write it down and i have was having trouble remembering it but no, we'll probably funny. cut it out but um but The Bureau changed their stance on Cooper's skydiving skill, saying, quote, We originally thought Cooper was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper, said Special Agent Larry Carr, leader of the investigative team from 2006 until its dissolution in 2016. We concluded after a few years that this was simply not true. 
A Boeing 727 at flaps 15 degrees, which means like, you know, the back flaps on the wings. Mm -hmm. You know how in order to slow the plane down, you tilt them at an angle. So he said, a Boeing 727 at flaps 15 degrees and lightweight probably flies at 150 knots or 172 miles per hour. No experienced parachutist would have jumped in the pitch black night in the rain with a 172 mile per hour wind in his face, wearing loafers and a trench coat. It was simply too risky. He also missed that his reserve parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut, something a skilled skydiver would have checked. He also failed to bring or request a helmet, chose to jump with the older and technically inferior of the two primary parachutes supplied to him, and jumped into a probable 15 degrees Fahrenheit wind at 10,000 feet in November over Washington State without proper protection against the extreme wind chill. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's enough evidence for me. Right. Another piece of evidence that adds to his profile is that D.B. Cooper left his tie with the mother of Pearl tie pin on the plane, and they tested it. They tested it for DNA and recovered DNA from three different people, and they were all partial DNA. Um, And they also have no proof that that is D.B. Cooper's DNA. But um, they, in 2011, researchers tested the tie and discovered particles of metals, which were at the time found only in metal fabrication or production facilities, or at, at chemical companies using it to store extremely corrosive substances. The findings suggested that Cooper may have been a chemist or a metallurgist, or possibly an engineer or a manager, the only employees who wore ties in such facilities at that time, in a metal or chemical manufacturing plant, or at a company that, re- that recovered scrap metal from those types of factories. Interesting. Yes. So, now it's time to talk about the suspects. Yes. So the first suspect comes to us via Thomas Colbert, who is a consultant, writer, producer, and former media executive. He was a newsman for 20 years, and he brought on an investigative journalist named Jim Forbes to be his partner. He started his investigation in 2011, and he spent a significant amount of his own money researching the case and putting together a crack team of investigative journalists, analysts, code breakers, and former FBI officials, ultimately culminating in a book called The Last Master Outlaw, and a History Channel two-part series called D.B. Cooper, Case Closed, question mark, which... Oh my God, that's your dream I title. watched, <laughs> I know. I watched this documentary, and I discovered that my friend Dave plays one of the co-pilots in the reenactment. <laughs> so if Dave listens to this, Dave, you were great in that reenactment. <laughs> great job, Dave. So these guys, Tom Colbert and Jim Forbes claim that D.B. Cooper was a man named Robert Rackstraw. Robert Rackstraw was a decorated U.S. Army paratrooper during the Vietnam War. He had received two Distinguished Flying Cross awards and a Silver Star. He went to jump school, demolition school, helicopter school. He was Special Forces Ops, Survival Skills, and PsyOps. He became a lieutenant and a pilot. He basically had had all of the skills that fit the, the initial profile of D.B. Cooper. That's insane. That's such a weirdly specific set of skills. I know. That's, I think, why people were drawn to him in the first place. And whether he's D.B. Cooper or not, this guy was just, like, a fucking badass. Like, that's fucking crazy. However, in 1971, the same year as the hijacking... He was forced to resign and was dismissed from the army for conduct unbecoming an officer, 
during unauthorized ground missions with the CIA and Green Berets. He was also a Green Beret. And for prohibited parachute jumps and for lying about attending two universities when in fact he was a high school dropout. So he had lied about his backstory and he kept getting into trouble and they kicked him out of the military. Wow. He also said at some point, and I couldn't find it, like I found this quote a long time ago and I've since lost it. So if anyone can find a source, that would be great. So, but I don't know that he actually said this, but he apparently said like, God help the army if I ever use their training against them. Because he had, they had, because he had been trained in like every possible thing you could be trained in. Could he stare at goats and make their hearts stop? (laughs) He was PSYOP, so maybe. Yeah. Robert Rackstraw came to the attention of the FBI in February of 1978 after he was arrested in Iran and deported to the U.S. to face explosives, possession, and check-kiting charges. So he... And what? Check-kiting charges. What is check-kiting? It's when you write checks and there's no money in the account and then you just, like, never show up again. I've never heard of that referred to as check kiting. Yeah, it's just check fraud, but it specifically refers to like when you like. Why is it called kiting? I don't know. To me, it conjures the image of like skating by like on a kite. Like you like you kite your way from transaction to transaction. Oh, yeah, here. Take it's it's float. It says taking advantage of the float to make use of non-existent funds. Interesting. So why didn't. They call it floating. (laughs) Good question. I feel like they took one too many logical leaps. (laughs) So basically he had like stockpiled a bunch of guns and dynamite and shit at his house. And when the FBI showed up to talk to him, it was like full of explosives. And so he was arrested and deported. Several months later, while he was out on bail, get this shit. He rents a plane which he can do because he has a pilot's license and he's out on bail. He hasn't officially been convicted of anything. He rents a plane and then he radios a mayday call telling air traffic control that he's bailing out of his plane, which is on fire over Monterey Bay. An extensive search is launched, but no one is able to recover a body or any wreckage. Does this sound familiar? Because we just had this conversation like two days ago. Yeah. Three months later, he turns up in Fullerton, California, Why? The plane is found at a now defunct (laughs) private airport with a new paint job and a new tail number. This motherfucker faked his own death to get out of the check fraud and explosives charges. He faked his own death to end up in Fullerton. Yeah, the worst. So now he's facing all the original charges and also charges for stealing a plane. (laughs) Is it illegal to fake your own death? I, uh, I think so, only because then you... Uh, wouldn't be like paying taxes and stuff. I think it's only considered illegal in the way that it's in that it leads you to doing illegal activities. Yes, right. Like I think or if like, you fake your own death and change your name and go into the witness protection program, as long as you pay your taxes, I don't think they care. But if you go, if you if you fake your own death while you're on bail, <laughs> awaiting criminal charges, yeah, definitely. But illegal. the act of faking your death in itself is not illegal. It's just all of the things surrounding it. That yeah. Are. Like, okay. for example, when they launch a man, like when they launch a manhunt for you, you're like, it's like a fake 911 call. Like, yeah, well, f- faking a 911 call or like faking a mayday, mayday call is illegal. Yeah. Hold on. I found a mental floss article called, is it illegal to fake your own death? <laughs> I, I think there are legal ways. Like, I don't think that the act of faking your own death in, a, in and of itself is illegal. 
Pseudocide isn't inherently a crime, but it involves so many built-in frauds that it's virtually impossible to legally fake your drowning. I'm so glad that we came to that conclusion. I don't conclusion know why they said own. drowning. Look at us. It's like we're sleuths. <laughs> it's almost <laughs> like it's our whole reason for being alive. So the FBI quietly investigated Robert Rackstraw for a year. And when he went to court, he gave an interview with reporters. And when he was asked if he was D.B. Cooper, because he was now publicly on the suspect list, this is what he had to say. Are you willing to state one way or the other whether or not you're D.B. Cooper? Uh, I'm afraid of heights. You had uh, parachute training, and, and uh, you, as you mentioned yourself, your, your background suggests that you could have been D.B. Cooper. Could have been. Could have been. You don't want to commit yourself one way or the other? No, I, uh, I can't commit myself on something like that, Warren. It's, uh, like I say, uh, primarily I'm afraid of heights. And uh, there's a matter there, too. You, you say, well, would a story like that, should it be fiction or should it be fact? And it's primarily up to the uh, American people uh, someday how that comes out. If it's going to be a fictional story or a factual story. So this motherfucker, they were like, are you D.B. Cooper? And he was like, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> this motherfucker. So he was given a three-year sentence for the charges, uh, but he had time served, so he only served one year. After he gets out of prison in the summer of 1980, he spends a year on probation, and then he goes to college, and he receives a degree from San Francisco University in business. And then he goes back to school again and gets a law degree. He becomes an arbitration expert. And then he goes to UC Riverside, where he teaches arbitration for 10 years as the head of the legal department before ultimately retiring. The FBI... That's such a strange... I know. <laughs> career change. I know. The FBI dismissed Robert Rackstraw as a suspect. They obviously can't tell us why, but he is no longer considered a suspect. Well, he's um, afraid of heights. They cleared him somehow. But that is not good enough for Tom Colbert and Jim Forbes, who made D.B. Cooper case closed, question mark. So now I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the insanity that is this documentary, because it's amazing. Um, I highly recommend watching it, but if you can't find it just like on history, you have to pay for it. It's like $2 on YouTube, which is what I did. <laughs> oh, I will absolutely be doing that tonight. So here's the thing. This guy, Tom Colbert, he did a lot of really good work, but he wants, he, he's so into the idea of Robert Rackstraw being D.B. Cooper that he will, he overlooks anything that doesn't con confirm his story, which is like a classic sl citizen sleuth mistake. You know, yeah. like if you believe, you want to believe so badly that you're willing to dismiss evidence that disproves your theory then what's the point so yeah he it's like when um like police investigate to prove a hypothesis instead of to find the truth exactly but less lower stakes <laughs> right so let me just say that that's the big problem with this um but i'm gonna tell you about it because it's fascinating and there the documentary is well produced. They did a lot of cool shit. And basically what they did, here's the thing. It's a little, it was him. That's what it feels like. 
You yeah. know, you know, it was him at Edwards. Yes. It feels like that. Like you're like, okay, I, I was with you, but now I'm like, is it? Was it? Well, him? you're with them like twenty percent of the way, half the time. Like I was with him until John Bonet. It's like that. It's like yeah. that. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the documentary because some really good stuff does come out of it. And also I just want to explain what's, what I'm talking about. So there's a guy named Bill Mitchell. He was 20 at the time of the hijacking. And he was the guy who sat in the same row as D.B. Cooper, but on the opposite <gasps> side. They oh were both God. in the middle seat of the back row. So he gets interviewed throughout the documentary. And at one point they show him a lineup of suspects, like six photos on like a card. One of whom is Robert Rackstraw. And he points, he's like, none of these people, I don't recognize any of these people, but then he points to Robert Rackstraw and he falsely identifies him as Richard McCoy. Richard McCoy is a man who executed a nearly identical copycat skyjacking, like months after D.B. Cooper's skyjacking. But he was really careless. Like one of the things that D.B. Cooper's famous for is that he left no fingerprints, like even the cigarette butts that he left have no DNA on them. He was like meticulous. I don't know. But Richard McCoy like left his fingerprints everywhere. His handwriting on the note matched his handwriting on his like military record. They figured out who he was like almost immediately. They found him with the cash He, when the FBI came to confront him, he started shooting at them. The FBI shot back and he was killed in a shootout. He did everything wrong. He did everything wrong. And he was never... Did he even wear a clip-on tie? Right. He was never conclusively linked to the D.B. Cooper uh, skyjacking. Uh, He also had a solid alibi. Like, everyone in his family was like, he was literally with us that Thanksgiving. Like, it wasn't him. He also couldn't have done the D.B. Cooper one because we saw what happened when he tried. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So it's pretty widely accepted that he's a copycat and not... D.B. Cooper, but um, but Bill Mitchell points to him and he's like, well, that's Richard McCoy, so that's obviously not him. Wow. <laughs> um, so it wasn't Richard McCoy. The picture was of Robert Rackstraw, but they do look similar because they all kind of look like D.B. Cooper. Um, but then the guys in the documentary try to explain that the forensic, like they bring in a forensic psychologist to explain that that actually proves that it was Robert Rackstraw because that fits his profile, his, like, Bill Mitchell's profile of what a skyjacker looks like. They're like, his memory is not reliable, but he recognized Robert Rackstraw as Richard McCoy because he knows that Robert Rackstraw is also a skyjacker. Now, and I was like, you lost me. That's bullshit. Absolutely not. Another problem with this interview is that they did an ambush interview with Robert Rackstraw. And, of course, Robert Rackstraw was like, I'm not talking to you. Like, they showed up at his, like at the boatyard where Robert Rackstraw like, goes around on his boat because he's retired. And they're like, are you D.B. Cooper? And he's like, I'm not talking to you guys about this. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm not having this conversation. And then, of course, his lawyer sends a bunch of cease and desist letters, whatever. And they, they're like, that's proof that he's trying to Exactly. Hide it. They're like, why wouldn't you just say no? I'm not D.B. Cooper. Because that, you don't want to leave the window open for a continued conversation. Exactly. And also, like... You want to be like, LOL, whatever, blocked. Right. <laughs> and cut it off. And cut it off there. So so one thing, the cool thing about this, this documentary is that they bring in a crime writer named Billy Jensen and a former FBI assistant director named Tom Fuentes. And they basically are brought in as, like, the foils to Tom Colbert and Jim Forbes. And they're brought in to do independent research and then... 
Tom Colbert and Jim Forbes are going to present their case to these guys and like see if it stands up under the pressure test. And obviously these guys are like, this is circumstantial. Like this is not going to hold up. <laughs> and these guys do actually get to go interview the guy at the FBI who's currently in charge of the Cooper case. They also, Tom Colbert, like his holy grail is getting an interview with Tina Mucklow. But Tina Mucklow has not spoken to the media since... 19, the 70s. Um, however, the documentary guys got Tina Mucklow and Bill Radichak for an interview with Billy Jensen and Tom Fuentes. Wow. So they got the first interview in the case's 45-year history with Tina Mucklow. And, and we love Tina Mucklow. We love her. And Bill Radichak, who was the co-pilot. Oh, my God. He's insane. the one who doesn't look like Fred Willard, RIP. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And it took us so long to figure out who I know. he looks like. I was just thinking about that when I was writing this. That's because so weird. on episode five, we were trying to remember Fred Willard. If you look up pictures from this case, the pilot of the of Flight 305 looks just like Fred Willard. And now he's passed away. R.I.P. Um, so Tina Mucklow is the flight attendant who spent the most time with D.B. Cooper. And I have to say that when she walks into the room and sees Bill Radshack, and they hug. Like, it makes me tear up a little bit. Oh. Um, Did they keep in touch, or was this like they were It reuniting? doesn't seem like it, because when she walks in, she goes, I know that face. Oh, that's so sweet. So, I, also, I didn't know this. Maybe I did know this. But Tina Mucklow is the one who made the exchange of the money in the parachutes. She had to get off the plane and pick up the ransom demands and made four trips back and forth to pick up the like the money and the f- parachutes and bring them back to DB Cooper. No one would help her. I think he demanded that she do it. Like cuz she he trusted her or whatever. You know, it was a hostage situation. Yeah, okay. You don't want she Okay, here's another thing. DB Cooper did not let any of the pilots come into the cabin throughout the entirety of the situation. Like as soon as the passengers were off the plane, he was like it's me and Tina. Wow. Because it's a hostage situation. If you lose your hostage, then you lose. Then it's just, it's called like a, I can't remember. It's called something else. And you can just like tear gas the plane. Right. Okay. So something else that I learned um, in the interview, Bill Radichak says that D.B. Cooper asked for the money in a knapsack, but the bank gave him a satchel bag, like a laundry bag. And he was apparently really upset because he had asked specifically for a knapsack, and we now we know why. And it suddenly made sense to me why he tore up the parachute and tied the money to his body because he yeah because they gave him a laundry. Bag. I know, but I didn't know that, and I didn't know that he had like asked for a knapsack, which makes so much sense. Anyway, it just was like, oh, this is all new information. That's so interesting. I also, would be pissed too. Yeah, I also learned that Bill Radichak really is like the unsung hero of this whole story. Because we learn in this interview that he actually had formulated an escape plan to get all the flight attendants and the pilots off the plane. But someone, like, dicked it somewhere in the process. And he did successfully get the other two flight attendants off the plane. And he basically was, like, told them, like, when Tina goes, get off the plane. And then we're all going to go. And Tina's just not going to come back. And that's how we're going to, you know, like, create like make this not a hostage situation but by the time that they had all communicated that to, well so the girls got out but by the time that 
that he had communicated his plan to the other co-pilot <laughs> to his other the other pilots. Tina was already on her way back for the she was the last trip. Oh no. Yeah. Um, and apparently one of the other pilots was like, should we make a break for it? And Bill was like, I'm not leaving without Tina. And the other pilots were like, that's good enough for me. I guess we're all going to do it. Oh. Yeah. During the second flight, I learned, Tina was supposed to lower the aft stairs, according to D.B. Cooper's commands, which also maybe gives credence to the thought, the, the idea that he didn't actually know that much about the aft stair situation because he asked her to do it. But the pilots didn't know if the pressure change would suck Tina out. So Bill Ratajak on the plane phone, uh, which is called like an inner phone, told her, hey, Andy, which is the third pilot, is going to come back there with emergency ropes and you're going to tie yourself to the seat and then you're going to lower the stairs. Because that way, if you get sucked out, like and you'll, the, the rope's only as long as from you to the door. But D.B. Cooper was like, nobody's coming back here. And Bill was like, okay, then I want you to open a parachute and tear it up and use the nylon strap to tie yourself to the chair. And then D.B. was like, you know what? You go to the cockpit. I'll handle it. And Tina was like, okay, thanks. Bye. So she went to the cockpit and Mm -hmm. he opened the stairs. Mm -hmm. It also makes me think that maybe that's where he got the idea to use the parachute for the money tie. Mm Mm-hmm. And Bill describes in that interview what an amazing job Tina did being at the center of this ter- like terror situation. And he describes the moment that Tina came through the cockpit door after D.B. Cooper released her, like dismissed her. And he literally starts crying in the interview. And he's just like, when Aww. she came through that door, like... I just like knew it was going to be okay. And he's like, you, you did such a good job to her. And she's like, she's like, Bill, that was a long time ago. And he's like, I never forgot. Oh my God. Wait, how old was she? Uh, probably in her early twenties. She's young. Oh my God. Can you imagine? And they're both like much older now. And it's, it was just like, I was literally crying watching it. So you should watch it. No, I'm definitely going to watch it tonight. (laughs) Um, also in this interview, they show Tina Mucklow a photo of Robert Rackstraw and they ask, like, could he be the guy that you were sitting next to on the plane? And she's like, no, I don't think so. This is when the documentary takes a turn because Jim Forbes is like, okay, you know what? I hear you. And I just watched this interview with Tina Mucklow and the needle just switched for me. Like, I don't think it could have been Robert Rackstraw. And Tom Colbert is like, well, unfortunately, that's a setback. Um, But, you know, I mean, her memory can't be that reliable, so. (laughs) Excuse me? (laughs) And one of the investigators. One of the investigators, I think it's Billy Johnson, is like, what would it take for you to say (laughs) this isn't the guy? And Tom Colbert is like, I want the FBI to take my 93 pieces of evidence and tell me that they're circumstantial and that we can't confirm it and that it's not worth opening the case. And Billy Jensen and Tom Fuentes are like, all right, well, I think we're done here. (laughs) And they leave. And then Jim Forbes has like a very, it's like a very hard to watch scene because Jim is like, Tom, like, I know that you have a lot riding on this, but like, you can't, we brought them here to test our theory and they proved it wrong. You can't ignore them now. And he's like, well, I just, I'm not convinced. So again, this is why this documentary like takes a turn and I don't believe it. 
Um, yeah. Also, there's a bunch of circumstantial evidence that he brings up eventually later down on down the line after the air, documentary aired about the D.B. Cooper letters. And I'm going to say this. I said this last time and I'm going to say it again. I'm leaving out the D.B. Cooper letters because the FBI's official position on them is that they're a hoax. There's no evidence that they came from the real D.B. Cooper. And to me, they don't even fit the psychological profile of D.B. Cooper because they are like taunting letters that are like, ha ha, I've come and gone many times since then and you'll never catch me and whatever. It just like doesn't even make sense. They were also sent from like all different cities. So I'm, I'm leaving them out. But eventually Tom finds a way to link Robert Rackstraw to a letter like he was in the same town at the same time. And then he had a this code breaker. A stretch. I know he had a code breaker. Look at the letter. And he's like, if you break out, like there's these weird series of numbers at the bottom of the letter. And if you rearrange them and multiply them, it's the unit that Robert Rackstraw was in the military. And then a real code breaker looked at it or sorry, not real, but another code breaker looked at it. It was like, this defies all the laws of code breaking. Like (laughs) it's not even consistent. Like the the code that the guy came up with to get that answer was literally like you, it was, it's like if you had the answer to a math problem and then you were like asked to solve and show your work, you know what I mean? Like you can't make it. You're just finding a way to solve to justify unit number. Right. Right. Exactly. Also, some other problems that I personally have is if Robert Rackstraw was like the military's best paratrooper, why would he have rejected the military parachutes and taken a civilian one? Correct. Second of all, why would he have not known that that was a dummy parachute? And third of all, if he was like part of the CIA special ops in this program where he was like faking humanitarian aid jumps out of 727s, why would he not know how to operate the aft stairs himself? Why would he even ask Tina to do it? Yeah. Solid points that I agree with. Lastly, and but certainly not least, he doesn't really look like D.B. Cooper. And and D.B. Cooper was in his 40s, supposedly. Robert Rackstraw would have been 28 at the time. Um, He also has like green or blue eyes. I can't tell because it's like the 70s, those those videos. But he has light eyes. And D.B. Cooper had dark brown eyes. They said that he looked like he was of Mediterranean descent. Mm. So it just doesn't work for me. Yeah, I'm going to do a hard no on that one. But then, in November of 2018, three months after episode five of Mystery Team Inc. was released. (laughs) (laughs) They love using this as a benchmark. (laughs) Thanks. A story was published in the Argonian. A military analyst had discovered a man with, quote, a plethora of potential links to D.B. Cooper. Over the summer, he had organized all of his research and sent it to the FBI. I am an analyst, he wrote to the Bureau, and in my professional opinion, there are too many connections to simply be a coincidence. So this guy currently works for the military as an analyst. He sent them all this stuff, and he was like, I would like to remain anonymous because everyone's going to think that I'm like a Cooperite, which I'm not. So he's not like a longtime follower of the D.B. Cooper case. His theory actually developed because he just offhandedly picked up an old copy of a, an obscure book called D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened? The book is by the late author Max Gunther. Gunther wrote that he was contacted in 1972 by a man who claimed to be D.B. Cooper. But then the man stopped responding to him. Ten years later... A woman calling herself Clara got in touch and told him that she was the widow of a man named Dan LeClaire 
and she claimed that Dan LeClaire is the man who had told Gunther that he was D.B. Cooper. The book itself tells like a fictionalized, romanticized version of their story, him and his wife. When the book came out, it was pretty much panned because it wasn't strictly true. And it also wasn't like a very good romantic fiction book because it was like <laughs> neither here nor there. And um, the like main, one of the main investigators from the FBI at the time uh, read it and was like, this is utter nonsense. Like it's not like it's not real um, because it wasn't like it was a fictionalized version. But the military analyst reading the book felt that he believed that at the very least someone did reach out to the author claiming to be D.B. Cooper. Whether or not he was really D.B. Cooper was up for debate, but he believed that someone reached out to him claiming to be D.B. Cooper and he wanted to figure out who that was. So he tracked breadcrumbs to a man named Dan Clare, who was a World War II vet who died in 1990. The author claimed that when the man first reached out to him, he was very careful in his correspondence. So he sent him a letter and he said that if the author was interested in speaking with him, he instructed him to place an ad in the Village Voice on March 2nd, wishing his wife Clara a happy birthday. Oh my God, I love that. It's very D.B. Cooper, I think. It is. Such an ad was indeed published in the New York News Weekly on March 2nd, 1972. We have a record of that. And the Oregonian says, so if Gunther's book published 13 years later was all a hoax perpetrated by the author, it was certainly a very long con. Yeah, that's even longer than making handwritten notes in a book about D.B. Cooper and putting it in your public library. Correct. Well, the analyst who was looking into Dan Clare as potentially the person who contacted him discovered that Dan Clare's second wife's birthday was March 2nd. So he was like, I feel like this is maybe the guy who reached out to him. Yeah. The analyst determined that Dan Clare was probably not D.B. Cooper because he didn't fit the profile. But he did discover that his close friend and co-worker may have been. And that that person or the two of them may have reached out to Gunther and that person may have used Dan Clare's life as a cover story, basically. Who's that Pokemon? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> His name was William J. Smith. His name was Will Smith. <laughs> yes. He oh was, my God, it's already so good. He was from New Jersey. He passed away in January of 2019 at age 89. Are you there? Yeah. Okay. I'm just like, I want more information all at once right directly into my veins. Okay, so listen to this. While still in high school, William J. Smith and Dan Clare started working for the Lehigh Valley Railroad together, along with Dan's dad. And William's father had also worked for the Lehigh Valley Railroad. He then went on to serve in World War II. He was a combat air crewman and a reconnaissance photographer in the Navy. He was rated as an aerial gunner and an aerial photographer. He also learned parachuting and survival skills as part of his time in the Navy, including navigation and identifying ground targets from the air, which he had intense training in because he was a recon photographer. Hmm. Dan An Clare. interesting set of skills. Correct. Dan Clare spent time at Fort Lewis in Washington State during the war. So Dan Clare was very familiar with Washington. Yeah, he knows where Tacoma is. Exactly. <laughs> After the war, 
he returns to working at the Lehigh Valley Railroad for like many, many years. This is another thing. His military experience was like 20, uh, almost, yeah, almost 30 years before the hijacking. So he's not like, it's not like he got dismissed this year and he's going to reject a military parachute. You know what I mean? I'm just place. I'm just planting seats here. Okay. It's like how I can't remember the periodic table of elements anymore. Right. But you might remember it well enough to like make a jump with a civilian, with a good civilian parachute. Okay. Yes. <laughs> In the fifties and early sixties, the trucking and airline industry slowly start taking business away from the railroad industry. In 1964, Boeing introduces the 727 passenger airline. In 1967, the U.S. Postal Service takes away much of the country's mail service from the railroads and gives it to the trucking and airline industries. But what about the Wells Fargo wagon? <laughs> yeah, I know. that. It's like, that. that's exactly the problem. <laughs> <laughs> America went downhill the day we got rid of the Wells Fargo wagon. Exactly. In the late 60s, the Pennsylvania Railroad acquires over 85% ownership of the Lehigh Valley Railroad, where Will Smith and Dan Clare work. (laughs) The Lehigh Valley becomes an operating unit of the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. In June of 1970, Penn Central declares bankruptcy. A month later, the Lehigh Valley Railroad declares bankruptcy Company losses for the year are over $10 million. Layoffs and furloughs are widespread. Pensions are completely wiped out. The quote-unquote wreck of the Penn Central, as it was called, was a catastrophic event in the lives of many thousands of men and women on the East Coast at the time. It was the largest American corporate bankruptcy ever. So basically everybody at the fucking railroad was out of a job. So the anonymous analyst believes that this may have been enough to start to cement a grudge against the airline industry and the government. Interesting. I don't have a grudge against your airlines, miss. I I just just have a grudge. I just have a grudge. Oh, my God. Now, this theory all essentially hinges on whether or not the people who contacted the author, Max Gunther, were really involved in the hijacking. So it's all still circumstantial, but let's suppose for the sake of the story that they really were at least connected to D.B. Cooper. In Gunther's book, the person that is D.B. Cooper, Dan LeClaire, as he's called, goes to, a, goes to a skydiving facility near Los Angeles in the summer of 1971. The FBI case files, which were not available to the public until 2017, show that investigators believe that the skyjacker likely visited the Elsinore Skydive Center near L.A. in 1971. Interesting. So that information is in the book, and it's in the case file, but it was not released to the public. (gasps) So if it's in the book, that tells me that there is at least a slight possibility that whoever called that author at least knew the hijacker. Yeah. Here's the other thing, just circumstantially. Doesn't that kind of sound like someone who's a little out of pra- out of practice at jumping? Someone who goes to a skydiving thing in L.A. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> like well, but like a couple months before committing. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. A hijacking. Yep. Doesn't it sound like someone who's a little rusty at jumping, but is going to like get caught up and then might still choose a civilian parachute and might mistake yeah. a dummy parachute? Okay, great. Oh yeah. Because that would maybe explain why. 
this version of D.B. Cooper would reject a military parachute in favor of a civilian parachute. Yeah, because he just learned how to... <laughs> he just relearned how to jump. Yeah. Gunther's book mentions that Leclerc had a scar on his left hand. It was a straight scar running from the knuckle at the base of the index finger to the fleshy part of the thumb. So like a scar on his palm. In my personal research, I uncovered rumors that the FBI knows of a scar on D.B. Cooper's hand, which was never revealed to the public. And in William J. Smith's Navy records, in which he lists a quote-unquote desire to fly on his enrollment forms and applies for combat aircrew training, it shows that he had a long scar on his right palm. <gasps> what the fuck? So even if the guy who wrote the author isn't D.B. Cooper... William J. Smith has the same scar on his hand that the author described. So that at least connects them. Like, you know, there's a connection. That's so weird. He also listed one of his models as, or sorry, he also listed one of his hobbies as model planes. So now it's like we're aware that this is a guy who at is least a nerd. It has an interest. William J. Smith's 1946 high school yearbook includes a list of alumni killed in World War II. Among those memorialized, no, a man named Ira Daniel Cooper, who no. went by Dan Cooper, grew up a block away from William J. Smith, who also, like William J. Smith, collected stamps, and they played in the same orchestra. Oh my god, they're little nerds. His name was Dan Cooper. That's fucking insane. And he died in World War II. God, that's so crazy. And he grew up with William J. Smith. That can't be a coincidence. That's what I'm saying. Because if your childhood friend died in World War II, would you not use their name as an alias to commit the only unsolved case of air piracy in the United States history? I, I would. just want, if I die in the apocalypse, please use my name to commit the sexiest air crime. <laughs> you know I will. <laughs> but it can only be a sexy air crime. Yeah. Then there's the matter of the tie. William J. Part. Smith, I know it's your favorite part. <laughs> William J. Smith was a yardmaster at a railroad. He's a manager. Oh. And as you'll remember, the findings suggested that Cooper may have been an engineer or a manager at, at a chemical or metal manufacturing plant or at a company that recovered scrap metal. So he that would have been fucking bill. around machinery, drill presses, coal, the railroad repair yard. Titanium, aluminum, bismuth, stainless steel, all the stuff that was found on the tie could be present oh. in that environment. Oh and he would God. have been wearing a tie. Here's another thing. He was 43 in 1971. He was approximately 5'10 and 170 pounds, which is uh, what... My dream. Which is what uh, D.B. Cooper was described as. Yeah. D.B. Cooper was described as having olive skin and dark brown eyes and... Uh, William J. Smith was of Hungarian ancestry, so he also had olive skin and dark brown eyes. He fits the description. And then the analyst found a picture of William J. Smith nope, from later in life. absolutely not. And I'm no. going to send it to you now. And I want you to look at it. I'm nervous. Oh, my God. When you look at that picture, do you not feel like you're oh looking at D.B. Cooper? Oh, my like, God. That man, I mean, he's obviously older in this picture. No, they look exactly the same. He looks exactly the same. <laughs> 
The only thing is that his nose is a little bigger, but your nose but and your ears how, grow yeah. as you get older. So, like, just imagine that guy. I mean, it's like, it's like freaky. It's uncanny. It's, it's freaky. It's really creepy. Like, when I was researching this, I saw the picture and I was like, ah, ah. like, can you even imagine? Like, look at that fucking guy. Like, that's the, the guy. The mouth. No, that's the guy. Like, it just feels to me so much like that is the guy. No, like, that's I just definitely can't the not guy. see it. And here's the it's thing. It's weird. Here's the thing, like the the composite sketch is a composite sketch, so it could accidentally look like a lot of people, but it just seems like if I, I had this... to pick D.B. Cooper out of a lineup, I would pick that guy. That's all I'm saying. That's bananas. And it's a little coincidental that he, I know I can't either, it's a little coincidental that he grew up with a friend named Dan Cooper and that he was a, in the army as in, and did a bunch of jumps and then that he worked at the railroad and then that the fucking airlines like shut down the railroad. Okay, I just think it's no, interesting. No, no, no. I mean, I, I don't think it's coincidental. I think there's too many things for it to be coincidental. I agree. Like, I think that's just what it is. The analyst also points out that he would have had access to railroad flares, which look exactly like cylinders of dynamite <gasps> and could have been used oh my God. to fake a bomb. Oh my God. He would have had the means. He would have had the motive. The analyst theorizes that the two men, Dan LeClaire, sorry, Dan Clare and William J. Smith, could have planned the jump together using Dan Clare's knowledge of the area. And they both he, they were both in the Navy, I believe, or they were both in the military. So um, he said, I believe he would have been able to see Interstate 5 from the air, he says, adding that one rail line ran parallel to the highway. Pouring over a 1971 railroad atlas, the hijacked plane's flight path, and the skyjacker's likely jump zone, he determined that no matter where D.B. Cooper landed, he would have been no more than five to seven miles from train tracks. So he said that with his knowledge and training, he could have jumped from a low-flying airliner, walked a few miles, and then just jumped on a fucking freight train Fuck. and been out of there. That's, I mean, it I also would have made sense because he could have taken a train back across the U.S. and no one would have had any idea. Like, he would have been completely invisible. Yeah. This theory is not even two years old. Oh, not you, Siri. I said theory. <laughs> this theory is not even two years old. The, not you, Siri. <laughs> she needs to relax. This idea is not even two years old. <laughs> Please don't cut that. We're going to leave it. The FBI obviously has declined to comment on it because as they basically said, as they said in the documentary, they're not taking any. Okay, so they officially closed the case in 2016. But they did say that if anyone brings forward evidence, that they are willing to reopen the case. They're like, yeah, if someone does our whole job for us, right. we'll look at it. But they basically said they were like, we're using resources for this that really should be going to like matters of national security. And so we're just going to like put it to rest for now. But they basically said, unless you have the parachute or the money, we're not like talking to you. That's what the FBI said. So this theory is new. The FBI obviously has declined to comment on it. I'm sure that if there are facts that rule William J. Smith out as D.B. Cooper, like if someone had a photo of him with his family in New Jersey on Thanksgiving Day of 1971, I'm sure that that information will come out. But for now, we don't have any evidence that precludes him. Oh my the way God. that we do for like Richard McCoy or even Robert Rackstraw, like there's evidence that discounts them. We do not have any evidence that discounts William J. Smith as of yet. But that I can't stop looking at that picture, man. I know I I haven't stopped looking at it. I'm obsessed with it. 
It's insane. So that is D.B. Cooper part two. The That's suspects. bananas. It has to be him. I really like in it my heart. I feel him. like it's him. I feel like it's him. It's gotta be. Like there's no, you know. There's nothing about that story that makes you go meh. Nah. I'm like. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like that's I'm that's enough for me. I agree. I love it. So So it's nice to put a face to my crush. Also, sorry, I don't know where I put the Oh, I sorry, I skipped this, but in the documentary, um Tom Fuentes says about DB Cooper, could he have been trying to scare the world, to scare the public, to tell everybody aviation is unsafe? Like could that have been part of the motive? Because they're essentially talking about whether or not the D.B. Cooper incident was terrorism. And he's like, well, if he was trying to tell, like, to scare people and tell them aviation is unsafe, then it's terror. But to me, it's interesting because that would feed right into the motive of the railroads going under. Yeah. No, no, no. I completely agree. Like, if you make people afraid to fly. Then they got to get back on those trains. I don't know. It's It's interesting. <laughs> God, I mean, that's bananas. I just love it so much. I can't stop looking I at it. I love that. The picture is truly so, it's like, I don't want to say haunt. It's not haunting, but it's like, the it's The eyes bananas. are like piercing. And it's They're like. They're the same. It's the same face. Can someone. Okay, so I think we should post this photo on the Instagram, but as like the second photo in like the yeah. scroll. And if anyone wants to, or maybe we should do this, I really want to Photoshop the glasses on him <laughs> and see what yes. it looks like. Um, yeah. So that's my mystery for today. Episode 45. Uh, it took me 40 episodes, but I finally came back and finished D.B. Cooper. For I'm now. I'm so happy you did. Or did I? I mean, maybe there's more. We'll never, we want, you know, maybe more will come out. But I just felt like, because we never went into any of that stuff in the first no. episode we we cut story. it off at the at the hijacking and we didn't yeah. talk about the suspects so well, i just thank god you didn't because otherwise this we this never would have moment <laughs> could have never happened yeah. fuck that's insane the I love end that. i love it too thank you thank you so do you want to take a quick break and then we'll come back and do your mystery yeah i'm so excited yeah you better be save this and save a copy of it <laughs> i'm going to okay We'll be right we'll back. We'll be right back. We'll buy Rot Beak. Um, is it time? It's time. For another mastery? Well, I have a mystery. Oh, but I have my mastery pants on. Well, then leave. Wow, you are really hateful toward the mastery <laughs> pants. That's the second time that you have verbally attacked me. <laughs> I have a big Instead problem yes with vowel me. changing. Tell me. Okay. I'm so, I'm so excited. My mystery is dark matter. Oh, my God. You're He's about to her. learn about some motherfucking physics. I'm so excited. So, today, we know that the universe is expanding at an accelerated rate. We also know that 90%, 95% of the matter and energy is 
calculable and proven, but unaccounted for. It's generally accepted that the mass energy makeup of the universe is 5% normal or baryonic matter and energy, which is like the matter that we are familiar with. 27% dark matter and 68% dark energy. We don't know. Listen, I too am 68% dark energy. <laughs> I almost did dark matter and dark energy. And then I was like, I'll do dark matter this time. And then later on down the line, I'll do dark energy. Because they're their own thing. Right. So. Inklings of the idea of dark matter started back in the 1600s when, after Isaac Newton presented his theory of universal gravity, some astronomers started to speculate about the existence of objects that emit no light but can be detected by their gravitational pull on objects that do emit light, like stars. In the 1700s, an astronomer named Pierre Laplace presented an idea of objects that were so massive that they trap any light they emit, which was like an early version of black holes. Got it. In the 1800s, Urbain Laverrier and John Couch Adams observed gravitational anomalies in the orbit of Uranus, and then they used those anomalies to predict the existence of Neptune, which was then later observed. Whoa, which is insane. That's great. Like they were like this. They predicted math. Neptune. Yeah. They used math to be like, there's something else there. And then Neptune was like, hey guys. Cool. <laughs> so and then at this point, astronomers had also discovered what are called dark nebulae, which their existence is only seen in the light that they absorb from other bodies. So they're like they're like black holes, but they're nebulae. So Little different, but same function. Okay. Then I don't know what that means. It's but fine. I'm not I'm gonna. Just, yes, yeah. Thank you. I'm not gonna like. I'm. Tr- I tried really hard not to go into like heavy, heady math, physics stuff. Yeah. Some of the time it's hard to avoid, so you're gonna have to of hang course. in there. <laughs> right. Yeah. For sure. So in 1933 things started to really ramp up which with um, a man who's considered the father of dark matter, whose name is Fritz Zwicky. <laughs> and Zwicky was working at Caltech at the time, and he was studying the motion of galaxies within the Coma Cluster, which is a galactic supercluster that contains more than 1,000 galaxies. Cool. So because all of these galaxies are bound by gravity to one another, you can use the speed that the galaxies are traveling to calculate the mass of the entire cluster using what is called the virial theorem, which I'm not going to make you learn that math. It's just a squared plus b squared equals c squared, right? <laughs> yes, correct. Okay, good. You then I can it. do it. <laughs> so a few years before Zwicky made this. You can. <laughs> do you want math that calculates the mass of a gal- galaxy cluster? You can. You can. Can I petition to add you can to our (laughs) sign-offs? You can petition. We'll take it into consideration. Okay, great. So a few years before Zwicky came out with his discovery, Edwin Hubble of the Hubble Telescope had estimated that the Coma Cluster, based on observation, had about 800 galaxies, each containing about a billion stars. So then Zwicky went in with the Virial theorem and found that the mass of the cluster was actually 500 times larger than what Hubble estimated. Wow. 
And he said that if his calculations were correct, then dark matter is present in a much greater amount than luminous matter, which is huge. This is the first time it has been presented in the world of physics that dark matter is more abundant than baryonic matter. Right. So over the next couple of decades, astronomers continued to apply the virial theorem to other galaxy clusters. They all got the same results, not like literally the same, but they all got results that said that... They all checked out. They all checked out. Um, They also realized that if dark matter worked the same way as like the dark nebulae, then black holes that absorb... And black holes, then it, it should be detectable based on the observation of the light around it being absorbed into it, but it isn't. Like, there's no halo. Hmm. And there's no event horizon for black matter, for dark matter. So it has to be matter that not only doesn't emit any light, but it also doesn't absorb light. So the theory is that (laughs) (laughs) if dark matter exists, it has to be non-baryonic and made up of an as-of-yet undiscovered subatomic particle right i'll come back to that but first i'm going to present you with some observational evidence of dark matter the first is something called galaxy rotation curves this was discovered by a woman named vera rubin in the 1970s and i want to shout her out for being a woman in stem in the fucking 70s in a male-dominated field yes vera yes vera she discovered it by observing the andromeda galaxy And she discovered that because of the way that spiral galaxies are shaped, if all of their mass is located in the luminous bodies within them, then most of the mass would be concentrated in the center. And then as you get out toward the arms, obviously there would be less mass. And physics dictates that the speed with which the matter in the arms moved would be less than the speed with which the matter closer to the center would move because of gravity. So, like, think about the planets, how, like, Earth moves faster around the sun than Pluto does. Yeah, right. So, that's not what's happening. (laughs) What's happening is that everything in the Andromeda galaxy is moving at the same speed. Whoa. Which means that the mass of the galaxy has to be evenly distributed. Yeah. And since we can't see that much mass, then there has to be something else there. I know. Okay. Number two is called gravitational lensing. So gravitational lensing is when a massive object is lying between a light source and an observer, and the object bends the light from the source behind it relative to the observer. Right. The more massive the object is, the more the light is bent. Okay. And if you measure the geometry of the light distortion, you can then calculate the mass of the object causing the lensing. And in the cases where this has been done, the mass to light ratio indicated a very large amount of dark matter. There was one measurement taken on a galaxy cluster called MACS J0416.1 2403. <laughs> We are coming to you live from MJCXY on 1.25 radio, here with all your dark matter needs. Um, This galaxy cluster was so massive that the gravitational lensing it caused created multiple images of galaxies behind it. 
which is Whoa. insane. Wait, what? Yeah. So like if it's less massive, it just bends the light around itself. But this was so massive that it, it created two images of the galaxies behind it. I don't understand. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I that's all it is. It's just the more mass it is, the more the light is bent. Right. I understand that. But so the light is just like so bent that it looks like there's what? Two. So, okay. So let's, I'm gonna, let's say there's one galaxy behind it, but it's not just one. But let's say there's one galaxy behind this cluster. And we're measuring the gravitational lensing of that galactic light around this cluster. Right. This cluster was so massive that it bent the light in such a way that it created two images of one galaxy, basically. But a lot, it, but in reality, it's a lot of galaxies. I mean, I understand what you're saying. I just am like having trouble picturing it, I guess. That's fine. It's not really for the human mind to understand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Um, but the scientists were able to map out the dark matter distribution within the galaxy cluster, and it's so beautiful. It's so cool. I'm obsessed with it. This is my favorite thing in the whole world. That's awesome. Okay. Number three is something called structure formation. In the early universe, there was a period known as structure formation during which the homogeneous landscape of the universe became heterogeneous, which then caused structures to start to form. Are you with me so far? Yeah, of course. Okay. So the early universe was dominated by radiation, which baryonic matter reacts with, and that kept the structure homogenous. They were reacting with each other and everything was staying the same. Right. The only way that structures could have started to form and for the universe to become heterogeneous was if something that doesn't react with radiation had been present and had started fluctuating much more quickly than much more quickly than baryonic matter would have been fluctuating in a universe restricted by radiation. I see. So what they think happened was that tiny fluctuations occurred shortly after the Big Bang and then under the influence of gravity started to create what they call a cosmic web, which then manipulated it into sheets and like filaments of dark matter. So there was like a web of dark matter going all through the early universe and that web started to like tangle into little knots which eventually started sucking in the baryonic matter, which started clumping together, and that turned into stars, and then stars, like, assembled themselves into galaxies. That's amazing. I love that. Yes. And now that dark matter is still around those clumps, and it forms what they call um, dark matter halos around galaxies and around galaxy clusters. But basically, the current model of the early universe couldn't have happened if there was no dark matter. I see. So, what could dark matter be made of? The, the, the theories. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to explain a couple things before we get to the theories. Okay. So, technically, dark matter simply refers to any substance that reacts with visible matter predominantly through gravity. So, it's not necessary that it is an entirely new particle, but most scientists agree that it's likely a new non-baryonic particle. Mm -hmm. In the early universe, 
baryonic matter contributed to the formation of hydrogen, helium, and lithium. And if dark matter was made up of baryonic matter, then the amount of these three elements in the universe would be far greater than it is now. Yeah. Also, I have a fun side note for you. This is my favorite part of physics. One of the subatomic particles in baryons are quarks, mm-hmm. which is my favorite subatomic particle. I've because heard of quarks. Do you know what their classifications are? Mm-mm. Okay, so their classifications are called flavors. <laughs> so there's six different flavors of quarks. <laughs> and here are the flavors. Up, down, bottom, top strange and charmed (laughs) and for i know and for a short period of time bottom and top were also called truth and beauty but it didn't like catch on (laughs) what fucking like witchy it was the 60s (laughs) truly it was that's like a very like alistair crowley doing physics like this one is charmed (laughs) flavor and this one is strange flavor. And this one's definitely a top. <laughs> yeah, that one's definitely a top. And this one is up, which is different because... And then we have a, a clear bottom. Yeah. And then that one's down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's my favorite thing in the world. Here are the types of non-baryonic matter that we are fans of currently. Axions. Sterile- we stand. <laughs> we, we kind of stand some of them. Okay. Axions, sterile neutrinos, weakly interacting massive particles, which are called WIMPs. Come on. And gravitationally interacting massive particles, which are called GIMPs. Are adults doing physics? They're either because high or this drunk. Sounds They've like <laughs> some big old nerds. It's just a bunch of fucking nerds. They're like, uh, these ones are called WIMPs. It stands for wimps. weakly interacting. <laughs> Massive particles. The best part is like that name. um, It's a fun coincidence. Is it? Yeah. Okay. We'll get to (laughs) we'll get to wimps, and you'll see. And then there is supersymmetric particles, and all of these types of matter fall into one of three theories of dark matter composition. We have cold dark matter, warm dark matter, and hot dark matter. Those are the three theories. Up dark matter, down dark matter, (laughs) strange dark matter, charm dark matter. So hot dark matter is called hot not because of its temperature, but because its particles have a low mass and therefore they move quickly compared to the speed of light. So it's just fast. Okay. Fast matter. It's fast dark matter. It's (laughs) it's fart matter. (laughs) So hot dark matter has basically been ruled out because the particles that it's theorized that it's made up of, which include neutrinos, move too fast to have formed clumps and therefore could not have contributed to the early universe structure formation that resulted in the universe we see now and would basically have done what scientists call smearing out the universe. So everyone was like, never mind. Wait, sorry, just to clarify. So the thing that it's like that hot dark matter is being ruled out of is what? Is being the dark matter. Like what's the question? The question is. Like what makes up the dark matter in our universe that we are observing? Yeah. So the question is, what do you think makes up dark matter? And then based on what you think makes up the dark matter, that can be put into three different categories. 
Okay, I see. So hot dark matter, what their main uh, competitors, neutrinos, but because of the kind of particles that could make up dark matter, it doesn't make sense that that would be the dark matter that was present in the early universe. Got it. So that's ruled out. I'm not going to get into warm dark matter because it's kind of like like someone tried to compromise and it's not worth our time. Sure. But we are going to get into cold dark matter. My heart. So <laughs> my heart is made of cold dark matter. <laughs> so cold dark matter, like hot dark matter, is called cold because its particles have a higher mass and therefore move slowly compared to the speed of light. The theory of cold dark matter was published in 1982. And in this theory, structures formed hierarchically from the bottom up, meaning they start with small objects which would collapse under their own gravity and then continually merge to create larger and larger structures. In the hot dark matter model, um, structures have to form uh, top down. So it would have to be like big things form and then they break down into smaller structures and that top down never works <laughs> we have talked about this before it doesn't work top down never works it's never top down no it's never it's always bottom up it never trickles down <laughs> it's trickle down doesn't work <laughs> detangle your hair from the bottom up <laughs> form your galactic clusters from the bottom up Political movements. Bottom up. Economics. It's always got to be bottom up. I'm just saying. No, you're absolutely right. Bottoms up. (laughs) So cold dark matter plays an important part of the current cosmological theory of the universe, which is known as the lambda CDM model, which stands for a lambda cold dark matter model. Mm -hmm. It's a model. It's a big bang model in which the universe has three main components. The first is a cosmological constant, the second, which is denoted by lambda. The second is uh, cold dark matter, and the third is baryonic matter. The cosmological constant is basically a numerical value for the energy density of space itself, or like a vacuum. Okay, yeah. Einstein originally introduced the concept of the cosmological constant to make his theory of relativity account for a static universe. But then Hubble was like, oh, the universe is expanding. And Einstein was like, yeah, fuck. (laughs) And he like abandoned the idea of the cosmological constant. And then from the 1930s to the 1990s, physicists just like assumed that the cosmological constant was zero. But then when they figured out that the universe was expanding and accelerating, they were like, no, no. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So the Lambda CDM model is widely accepted because it provides a good account of the existence and structure of cosmic microwave background radiation, which is basically just like if you run through a computer simulator, the... uh, conditions of the Big Bang in the early universe, you can see like a map of what happened and it's all based in math. So the Lambda CDM model, like if you put in Lambda as what we think the cosmological constant is now and then you use the cold dark matter values, it looks like the map of the universe and the background radiation of the universe that we have now. 
Right. Got which it. Which is super fucking cool. That's awesome. Um, it accounts for the large-scale structure in the distribution of galaxies. So it accounts for the clusters and where they are in the universe. It um, accounts for the observed abundances of hydrogen, helium, and lithium. It accounts for the accelerating expansion of the universe. Uh, it also makes the assumption that the general theory of relativity holds true on a cosmological scale, which some people are like, no, we need a new theory of relativity. And everyone's like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> like some people don't like to make that the assumption that on a cosmological scale, those laws of physics will hold. But most people are like, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, um, I don't think we need a new one. <laughs> no, we don't need a new one. Some people think the old we need one a new is fine. One. <laughs> if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The problem is that it is a little broke because okay, of but, dark matter. <laughs> okay, because of ninety-five percent of the universe. You said sixty-seven. Eight, dark matter 68. and dark energy combined make up ninety-five percent of the universe, Ugh. and they provide the main problems with the general theory of relativity, but. There are, like, theoretical solutions to the problem. So there are three main categories of compositional theories of cold dark matter. The first is axions, which are theoretical particles that have very, very low mass and no electric charge and therefore wouldn't interact with baryonic matter, which makes them a perfect candidate for dark matter. They also solve what is called the strong CP problem in quantum chromodynamics, which is basically that, okay. So there are four types of interactions between matter in our universe. There are strong interactions, which are strong nuclear forces that hold all the particles together. There are weak interactions, which are interactions between subatomic particles that are responsible for the radioactive decay of atoms. Then there is electromagnetism, which occurs between electrically charged particles. And then there is gravity. So it was widely believed for a very long time that these four interactions all obeyed the laws of what is called charge, par charge parity symmetry, or CP symmetry, which basically says that the laws of physics should stay the same if you interchange a particle with its antiparticle. Because their okay. charges are just negative and positive, and right. their parity is left or right. So if you like switch them, it should the universe should stay in balance. Okay. But um, they've observed in weak interactions that it's possible to violate that law. So like sometimes when particles and antiparticles interact, the symmetry doesn't remain the same. Oh, okay. It's also mathematically possible for that to happen in strong interactions, but it's never been observed. Okay. So that's the problem. The problem is that in an infinite expanding universe, if something is possible but not being observed, that probably means that it's happening and it's being hidden. So if it's happening if this charge parity symmetry is being violated in strong interactions that means that it's being suppressed by more than a factor of one billion so physicists were like we have to figure out why these interactions are disappearing hmm. so in 1977 physicists roberto pecce and helen quinn 
proposed that instead of the CP violation being an independently measured value as it had been, maybe it acts as like a field, which would require a new particle to make up that field. And this new particle was the axion. So the axion hasn't been observed, but people are working their asses off on it. And it solves both the strong CP problem and the dark matter problem. So it's a good contender. Mm. Okay. Did that make any sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Because I, <laughs> I tried so hard to condense it into logical <laughs> sentences without yeah. <laughs> including <laughs> equations. Essentially. So, like, they've created a model for what that particle would look like. It's just not been observed. But they're like, if something looked like existed that followed all of these rules, that would explain the problems. Yes. Right. And the interesting thing about quantum physics is that, like, that's how every subatomic particle has been discovered, is by people being like, hmm, I wonder if there's something that, like, makes up everything. And then everyone was, then people found atoms. And then they were like, I wonder if there's something that gives mass. And then for decades, they were like, nah, we don't know. And then they detected the Higgs boson. So, like, it's just a matter of, like, getting it to show Knowing up. what to look for, basically. Yeah. And, you know, it's like we barely have the technological power to make the Higgs boson show up. So, you know. It's, very it's like the difficult. opposite of the citizen sleuth problem. It's like you need to know exactly what the answer is when you start looking for an answer. Yes. And then you also like... need, you need the ability to generate enough power to create a yeah. like quantum situation in which that thing would appear. Yeah. And it's also like in strong, in um, weak interactions, it's like one in every 1,000 uh, the violation occurs. So we don't know how often it occurs in strong interactions. So it's really just like needle in a haystack. But yeah, just the, like throwing yeah, darts at a board. Yeah. Uh, physics is incredible. Um, the, ne- <laughs> the next <laughs> possible makeup of cold dark matter is, are massive complex halo objects or machos. <laughs> which were named after wimps were named. Mm. So like wimps, the name just happened, but machos, they like kind of reached for it. Yeah, you can tell. Yeah. So a macho is a celestial body composed of normal baryonic matter that emits little or no radiation and just like drifts through space unassociated with any system. It includes... Tag yourself. Yeah. <laughs> It includes black holes, neutron stars, white white dwarfs, very faint stars, or planets if they're unattached to a planetary system. Um, oh, I guess I didn't. It didn't occur to me that that happened. Are there a lot it, of planets that are not? I think attached it's to... rare, okay. but it exists. Yeah. So these guys are detected using gravitational lensing, but they're all isolated points within the universe. So they can't really account for the 27% of mass missing from the universe. One research group claimed that they found enough machos with an average mass of 0.5 solar masses that would it would account for like 20% of dark matter, but that's not enough. So everyone was like, yeah, no. 
So it's not like black holes. Right. And then our sweet baby angels, the wimps. So there's not like a nailed down definition of like what a wimp particle would be because they're still theoretical like axions, but they're they're like a category of particles um, and they haven't been observed. But basically they are particles that interact via gravity, but they interact with a force that is as weak or weaker than the weak interaction, which I described to you earlier. Do you want to refresh? Do you remember that? No, yeah, I remember. Okay, good. I just have such a bad memory. (laughs) So because of their lack of electromagnetic interaction with normal matter, wimps would be invisible through normal electromagnetic observations. And because of their large mass, they would be relatively slow moving and therefore cold. And cold, dark matter. Their relatively low velocities would be insufficient to overcome the gravitational attraction between them, and therefore they would clump. Aha! So we have no light. We have only gravitational interaction with normal matter. We have cold, and we have clumps. So this is this is the the favorite. This is the guy whose picture looks exactly like D.B. Cooper. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so weakly interacting massive particles are what scientists call relic particles from the early universe. So in the early universe, all the particles were in a state of thermal equilibrium. At a high enough temperature, the WIMP particles and their antiparticles would have been forming from and then also annihilating into lighter particles. And then as the universe cooled down, the thermal energy of the lighter particles that they were forming from and annihilating into would eventually become too low for them to be able to then form dark matter and anti-dark matter particles again. But the annihilation would have continued until the number density of those particles and antiparticles uh, slowed and then eventually stopped the annihilations or any interactions between them. And then the last particles to finish annihilating with one another would be the particles with a large enough cross-section for that interaction. A cross-section is, in physics, it's a measure of the probability that a specific process will take place in a collision of two particles. So, okay. like the you know sometimes they would annihilate and not become this lighter particle they become something else but the cross section is the probability that they will collide and they will break down into these particles so the cooling would eventually lead to a universe in which only the dark matter particles with a very specific cross section would be left standing and then the number density of those particles would remain pretty much static throughout the life of the universe So (laughs) this is the crazy part. Based on the current estimated amount of dark matter in the universe, if the dark matter particle is this relic particle, then the interaction cross-section governing that annihilation would have to be no larger than the exact cross-section for what scientists observed for all weak interactions. Oh, so if the if the it's current, like a one in a billion chance, like, like it like no... the yes, it's bananas. So they were like, 
what, you know, what would happen if the particles did this? And then they were like, oh, then the only particles left over would be this very small group of possible particles. And that's this particle. Wow. But it hasn't been observed. Right. But it makes fucking sense. Yeah. Right. So basically they like worked backwards and then got this particle and now they just have to find it. That's incredible. So there is other theories about like the thing, the observations that led to the theory of dark matter. But basically what they do is they like take specific instances like, they'll be like, we can explain gravitational lensing. And then you're like, well, explain literally all the other points we made. And they're like, no. <laughs> That's a bummer because gravitational lensing is the only thing in this really complicated story that I have not understood. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like I've been doing a pretty good job, but that's the one fucking thing where I'm like, I don't get it. I mean, it's I get just the that... concept of gravitational lensing. I just don't understand... It's literally just the way dark matter behaves like in that context. It's because, and what it means. okay, let me see if I can explain it to you. So when you have a lot of mass, you have a lot of gravity and gravity bends the fabric of space time. So if you, it's like, so if you have this ball of dark matter and it's sitting in space and it has a shit ton of gravity around it because it's so massive, right. it's bending space time around it. Right. And then if you are shining light from behind it, right. then those photons are going to bend with the space-time fabric bend. Right. That's it. Right. I get that part. That's that it. makes sense. It's There's just, nothing I don't understand. Well, I don't understand how it would generate, like, to the image of two galaxies. The only, that was not explained. The only thing I can think of is that if it was so massive that it bent space-time so much that the light from the galaxies went so far away from itself in two directions that it then ended up just like showing two images. Oh, I don't know I if that's see. right, but that's what I think might be the answer. See, like that I can sort of, like I can picture that image. I just like couldn't picture the image the way that it was described before. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I, it's just like, it. They. I, I think, I should look it up, but my brain's exhausted. But I think it's just like, it's bent space-time so much that the light just went in like two directions. Yeah. Okay. Now I get it. Yeah. I think that's what it is. Makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> now... <sighs> without dark matter we don't know what it's fucking made of good it job it could also be what? none of the things that i presented to you like we have no idea dark matter dark what is it that's crazy this is my favorite thing in the whole world i know <laughs> i love it so much <laughs> i love space math i think that's a good thing <laughs> my brain was like i should go to school for it and then i was like i mm -hmm. did that already <laughs> She already did that. I, did that. I do remember, though. I think I've told you this story. My first astrophysics class, when they made us calculate the mass of the Milky Way galaxy and then made us calculate the mass of the luminous matter in the Milky mm -hmm. Way galaxy, and we were like, nah. <laughs> yep. Oh, that was the highlight of my academic That's a career. nightmare. It was week one. Yeah, that's a nightmare. Nightmare. It just gets worse from there. 
I believe it because now I know like 30 minutes worth of information more about dark matter than I knew and my brain's already broken so I can't imagine what four years of school about it would do. Oh god. But although one of the things we did was we just calculated what happened when galaxies collided which is always fun. That's cool. Because they just like one of them eats the other one. what you get to do on like a rainy day. Yeah, it when was like, like heads up seven up. Hey guys, guards. today we're just gonna yeah exactly. <laughs> today we're just gonna like play with Legos, <laughs> like for space math kids. It's like today we're just gonna do galaxies colliding. Ah, uh, so cool. There's a um, there's a simulator online where you can, you can simulate just like galactic smash galaxies collisions. together. Yes, and you can like change the masses of each of the galaxies, so you can make like a giant one eat the tiny one, or you can make like two similarly sized ones just kind of like moosh into Duke it each out. other. <laughs> yeah, it's so fun. I love it. Uh, we love galaxies. Do you have any business? <sighs> no, stay in school, kids. <laughs> and in your lane. Yeah. Should we do our... Oh, but we have to do the all the bullshits first. Okay. Follow us on Instagram at Mystery Team Inc. Or send us any emails at Mystery Team Incorporated at gmail.com. You can also follow us on our Twitter that we don't use, which is <laughs> <laughs> Mystery Team Inc. 1. <laughs> Please rate and review because that helps us. And thanks for listening. Thank you. We don't know. Stay in your lane. Fuckle the buck up. Smooches. From six feet away. (laughs) (laughs) Till further notice. Goodbye. Goodbye. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.